Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, Episode 8, The Imperial Bride. This week we finally say goodbye to Emperor Otto the Great after seven episodes. I hope you agree he was worth it. When we last saw him, he was celebrating the end of his successful campaign in Italy with the Great Assembly at Cologne. This great gathering in 965 was even more of a confirmation of his role as successor to the great Charlemagne than the coronation itself. The assembled rulers of Western Europe did not just show up for the party. They recognized him as emperor, as a ruler above mere kings. And that included Lothar, the young king of France. After three years in Italy, what he now needs is to stay around with his German subjects and give them a bit of TLC. Early medieval monarchs were not supposed to be away for so long. Because there's no real bureaucracy of any kind, all decisions, deliberations and orders are best done face to face. It is management by walking around. Since Carolingian times, the court had followed a largely consistent itinerary going from one royal palace, called a Pfalz, to the next. So for instance, the Ottonian emperors would regularly celebrate Easter in Quedlinburg and Christmas in Frankfurt, and call regularly at Fritzlar, Memleben, Magdeburg, Ingelheim, Worms and Aachen, to name a few. That constant travel is in part necessary because no single location could feed the hundreds if not thousands of people that made up the entourage of the king. But more importantly, the presence of the king or emperor projected power. Wherever the royal party stopped, he would issue judgments, he would consult with his barons, plan military campaigns, award positions and solve administrative problems. If he does not show up for a longer time, fewer decisions are being taken. Quarrels between the highest-ranking nobles and between the church and the nobles remain unresolved, often ending up in feuds. Key positions may be left vacant until an answer can be obtained, leaving borders unmanaged. Even worse, it weakens the bond that holds the kingdom together. Medieval vassalage is in the end a personal, not an institutional relationship. The nobles has his rights and obligations first and foremost towards the king as an individual not to the king as an institution. Therefore, the major nobles expect the king to call on their support in person, not always, but at least from time to time. Equally, the major nobles are entitled to advise the king, and the king was obliged to take their advice into account. And that could only happen when the king was around. Failure to do so leads to frustration and ultimately revolt. Therefore, it is paramount for Otto to remain in Germany for the next few years and re-establish his relationship with the magnates of his kingdom. And as with most things paramount, Otto decided not to do that either. Events in Rome demanded another journey across the Alps. Pope Leo VIII had died and the Romans, now a bit more circumspect than before, asked Otto's permission before electing a new pope. They raised John XIII, to the seat of St. Peter. John was a more worthy vicar of Christ by 10th century standards, having received a proper ecclesiastical education and has been ordained as a bishop. Though that was not the reason he was elected. He was, first and foremost, a senior member of the Crescenti family. The Crescenti were the other Roman clan that vied for prominence against the Theophilacts. You may remember the Theophilacts. They are the clan of Mariuccia, and Randy Pope John XII. That could not go down well, and by Christmas 965, the Romans under Theophilact leadership rose up, 
Pope John XIII disappeared into a cell in the Castello di Sant'Angelo. In the meantime, Berenga's son Adalbert had returned from Corsica, as soon as he had seen the last of Otto's soldiers turn the corner of the Brenner Pass. Apparently, Italy is no different from Germany. Once the ruler is physically absent, the power balance shifts and the magnates begin to rise up. That explains why Adalbert managed to gain instant support amongst the Italian barons. Otto's political position in Italy was almost wiped out. Members of the pro-Ottonian party that Empress Adelheid had built so carefully were either joining the new pretender or hid in their strongholds. Even the bishops Otto had appointed as his representatives in Italy switched sides. Otto had no option but to go down to Italy. He called a diet in Worms to set the kingdom up for another extended stay down south. First item on the agenda was the regency, which again went to his son, Archbishop William of Mainz. King Otto II, now 11 years old, was again left behind with his uncle. The other big items on the agenda were two significant inheritances. The first one was Markgraf Gero, the bloodthirsty conqueror of what is today states of Saxony and Brandenburg. Gero had died without a male heir, giving Otto the opportunity to allocate his enormous possessions fairly freely. Now, Before Ludolf's uprising, he might have taken the inheritance and given it to a member of his family or a close confidant. By 965, that had changed. Otto realized that he needed to reward the powerful families if he wanted to stay safe from rebellions. Consequently, he split Gero's inheritance into six separate counties and marches that he handed to either senior members of Gero's extended clan or scions of mighty Saxon families, some of whom may have even been loyal supporters. That had some long-term consequences. By handing these rare and unexpected windfalls back to the aristocratic clans, he allowed new and powerful entities to grow up. These entities over time challenged the emperors. Just as an example, one of those entities, the Mark of Brandenburg, was the county that would later turn into the Kingdom of Prussia. Otto's approach is very different to that of the French kings, who consolidated every vacant duchy, county, baronetcy, village, eldermanship, whatever, into the direct ownership of the king whenever they could. And that way, the French kings managed to build a unified kingdom, whilst Germany, well, you will see. The other sad loss was Archbishop Brun of Cologne, Otto's brother and most loyal counsellor. He was replaced as Archbishop of Cologne by Volkmar, but again, Volkmar did not receive the Duchy of Lothringia. The two sub-duchies of Upper and Lower Lothringia that Brun had created for administrative purposes were elevated to full duchies and given to local powerful lords. In August 966, Otto crossed the Alps via the Gotthard Passes with now a much smaller army than last time. Most of the German dukes, counts and bishops stayed back home. Nevertheless, the Italian nobles immediately succumbed. Adalbert had already left the country, courtesy of an advance party led by Duke Burkhard of Swabia. Otto moved into the capital, Pavia, and took control of northern Italy, replacing his previously unreliable administrators with others no less flighty. After this, his third attempt at the Italian crown, Adalbert gave up his ambitions. He retired to his wife's possessions in Burgundy, 
and gave his only son the name Otto as a sign of submission. That is not the end of Berenga's family quest for the crown of Italy, but we get a reprieve for 30 years. Now once it was cold enough, Otto went down to Rome. He took the city, he freed the Pope, and he instigated a Christmas bloodbath amongst his supporters of the Theophylacts. The leader of the rebellion was hanged from the neck of the statue of Marcus Aurelius, the one that stands on the capital today. The rest had their necks snapped in a more traditional manner, or were whipped naked through the streets, walk of shame star. After that, Otto I had no more trouble from the Romans for the rest of his reign. That being done, Otto expanded his control south of Rome, forcing the Lombard dukes of Capua, Spoleto and Benevento to acknowledge him as their overlord. In an effort to simplify things, he had the three duchies put under control of one of them, Pandolf Ironhead, who became Otto's man for the south. Otto now had a border with the Eastern Roman Empire in Byzantium, which still held most of southern Italy. Byzantium had been very much on the up over the last 50 years, and a succession of warlike leaders, namely Romanos Le Capinos and Nikephoras Phocas, the empire had pushed the Muslim Caliphate back towards Baghdad and reconquered Crete, Antioch and other centres of the ancient Roman Empire. For the first time in a long time, they were in a position where they could project power in Italy, had Otto become too much of a nuisance. And him taking over the Lombard duchies made him a bit of a nuisance. The Byzantines began mustering an army to send over to Italy. Otto had absolutely no interest in a confrontation with the emperor in Constantinople. In fact, the exact opposite was the case. Despite all his success and power, Otto had a serious inferiority complex. He knew the inhabitants of the Eastern Empire looked down on the uncivilized Germanic boars that had grabbed hold of the ancient Western Empire. Otto I had literally only just learned to read and write, whilst most of the nobles of the Eastern Empire were majoring in intricate theological differences. What Otto really, really wanted was to be acknowledged as an equal by the Byzantines. To that aim, he proposed a marriage between his son, Otto II, and Anna, daughter of the Emperor Romanos II and stepdaughter of the current Emperor Nikephoros Phocas. Anna was the highest category of Byzantine princess, as she was born in the purple, i.e. she was born in a special room in the imperial palace that was covered in purple stone where only reigning empresses were allowed to give birth. Otto was confident this would be a straightforward deal and called his son down from Germany to get ready for marriage and coronation. When Byzantium heard of the proposal, the laughter of derision must have been heard up and down the Mediterranean Sea, marrying a purple-born princess destined for the church to this barbarian usurper. You must be joking. Otto was hurt, and when a 10th century monarch is feeling pain, a lot of poor peasants will feel a lot more pain. He readied his army and invaded the Byzantine duchy of Puglia, in the very southeast of Italy. As per their military manual, the Byzantine troops disappeared behind the walls of the big cities and Otto raided the countryside. To force a decision, he laid siege to the city of Bari. Bari was the major harbour linking Italy to Greece since Roman times. As a harbour, it was quite easy to resupply since the Byzantines controlled the sea. Otto had overlooked that crucial piece of military intelligence and had to raise the siege. 
he returned to his new palace in Ravenna, empty-handed. As he was already there, Otto had his son crowned Emperor Otto II in Rome in December 967. Negotiations with Byzantium started up again. This time, our old friend Louis Prandt of Cremona was dispatched to Constantinople to deal with Nikephoras Phokas. Nikephoras offered the hand of Anna in exchange for Ravenna, Rome and all that Otto held in southern Italy. That was a bit too much for Otto. Otto took his army down to Bari again to find out the city was still by the sea. Meanwhile, on the shore of the Bosphorus, Nikephoras had our hapless envoy put in jail, which earned him a scolding description as a short, ugly, boorish man in Louis Prant's memoirs. And it would have gone on forever like that, had not Nikephoras been murdered during a palace coup. The new emperor was his nephew and murderer, John Zimiskis. John had to show up his reign and had no time for skirmishes with some barbaric western pseudo-emperor. John agreed to send a princess for Otto II. And with that, and her stage left, the most glamorous female figure of medieval German history, Theophano Scleraina. Theophano was the daughter of Constantinus Scleros and Sophia Phokas. Both the Scleros clan and the Phokas were prominent military families. However, Theophano's blood relationship with actual empress was at best tangential. Through her mother, she was a great-niece of the former emperor Nikephoras Phokas. She was also related to the usurper John Zimiskis, who had previously been married to her aunt. But Nikephoras Phokas and John Zimiskis were career emperors who acquired the throne through military success. They were not hereditary emperors. The true blue-blooded imperial family were the Macedonians, who ranked well above Nikephoras Phokas and John Zimiskis and towered over Theophano. Her rank in the line of succession to the imperial throne is roughly equivalent to Savannah Phillips' claim to the British throne today. Do you know who Savannah Phillips is? Well, nor do I. When John Zimiskis chose this very minor royal to be married to the young Emperor Otto II, he knew that this was a slap in the face. It is not that Otto's court was ignorant of the affairs and intrigues in Constantinople. There were regular embassies between the two courts, and Greek churchmen took up important roles in Rome and elsewhere. Otto and his advisers knew full well that what had arrived was not a purple-born Macedonian princess. They knew she was not even a blood relative of the current emperor. They also knew that in 927, an actual daughter of an actual emperor, Christopher Lacapanos, had been married to a Bulgarian emperor. And to add even more irony, about 20 years later, the desired purple-born Princess Anna was married to Vladimir, the Grand Duke of the Kievan Rus. I doubt there was any ambiguity about what just happened. The Byzantines did not mind marrying their princes to barbarians, they just minded marrying them to this barbarian. The other person who knew full well that she had been sent on a suicide mission was 12-year-old Theophano Scleraina. She was given all the trappings of a Byzantine princess, robes of gold and purple, diadems and earrings and a train of exotic-looking attendants. But underneath all that bling, she must have been scared shitless. The most positive outcome of this journey was that she would be sent back, which meant she would be damaged good for any future marriage in Constantinople, and she would end up in a monastery. But at least she would be back home. The worse option 
was that she would be rejected and then held a monastery somewhere in this barbaric north, places with terrifying names like Essen or Gandersheim. And alternative three, she may have to spend the rest of her life with an uncouth ginger bloke whose father was famously her suit. But when the two autos unpacked the parcel from the Vasilev, they realised they had been played. Yes, they could send her back and put her into a monastery. But what then? Start another attempt at conquering Bari? The city still had a harbour, and the Germans still did not have a fleet. And if it really came to war, John Zemiskis, he was a famous general, the hero of the campaigns against the Saracens. If he arrived in Italy, the still fragile Italian situation would very quickly turn against them. Last, but by no means least, by 972, Otto had already been in Italy for six years, far too long to leave his vassals north of the Alps unsupervised. Best solution for Otto is to grin and bear it. Teofano was presented to the German people in all her exotic Byzantine finery and hailed as the finest of blue-blooded princesses. And it worked. When I learned about Teofano in the 1980s, it was still in all the school books that she was a Byzantine princess, not just some distant relative. On the 14th of April 972, she was married to the now 17-year-old Emperor Otto II. Theophana was also crowned Empress, for good measure, and received her personal appanage in a sumptuously decorated title deed that you can see on the History of the Germans Facebook page. Otto really had to go home now. He had been in Italy for six years, and if you add the previous journey, he had been away for almost ten years. Because Otto had failed to show up for such a long time, grumblings had begun about a possible rebellion. Not from Bavaria or Lothringia, where rebellions been endemic for decades. No, this time from Otto's heartland, Saxony. Otto had left his old friend Hermann Billung in charge of Saxony. In the last thirty years, Hermann, Markgraf Gero and the Saxon armies had pushed the borders of the realm further and further east until they had reached Poland. Not content with that success, they waged war against the Polish Duke Mieszko. Mieszko finally succumbed, accepted Christianity, married a Christian Saxon noblewoman and accepted a sort of overlordship by the German kings. For all that, Hermann was elevated to be Duke, Gero's associates had become counts of the border marches, but still he and his fellow nobles did not feel they got the recognition they deserved from their absent king. Rumours were going round that Otto had died in Italy. His instructions to continue the fight against the Redarius in the north were ignored, and generally the whole place had become restless. In a deliberate act of insubordination, on Palm Sunday, Hermann entered Magdeburg, Otto's favourite faults, and received reverence from the archbishop as if he was the king, he took Otto's seat at the table and he even slept in Otto's own bed. The message was clear. Come home, or there will not be a home to come back to. But when Otto came home in 973, all was fine again. Hermann came to see him, bent the knee and gave huge presents, as did the Archbishop of Magdeburg. The Saxon leaders regained their access to the king, and whatever sedition that might have been, it stopped. Otto celebrated his rule one last time in Quedlinburg, where the kings of Poland and Denmark and the Duke of Bohemia came in person to pay their respects 
whilst every European power, including the Caliph in Cordoba and the Emperor in Constantinople, had sent envoys. A few weeks later, on the 7th of May, 973, at the age of 61, at his palace in Memleben, Otto grew feverish and tired. I let Widukind of Corvey take over from here. His men understood what was happening and lay him on a bench. His head was dropping as if he were already dead, but they revived him. He was just able to receive the sacraments before he gave his last breath, without a groan and at peace. The people said a great deal in praise of him and remembered that he had governed his subjects with paternal mercy and had freed them from their enemies. He had conquered with arms his arrogant enemies, namely the Magyars, the Saracens and Danes. He had subjugated Italy. He had destroyed the shrines of the gods amongst the neighboring peoples. He had established churches and orders of priests. They recalled many other good things as they participated in the royal funeral. When the morning came, although he had already been anointed as king and designated emperor by the Pope, the people eagerly gave their hands to the son of the emperor, the unique hope of the entire church, as they had done before, promised their loyalty and support against all the adversaries and confirmed this with military oaths. Thus he was elected anew by the entire people as their ruler. He transferred his father's body to the city which his father himself had built, called Magdeburg. He died, the Emperor of the Romans, the King of Peoples, on the 7th of May, the Wednesday before Pentecost. Otto had been King of East Francia for 37 years and had been formerly Roman Emperor for 11. He lies under a simple marble slab in the dome in Magdeburg, next to his beloved first wife, Edgith. See you next week.